having thwarted the attack of Perkin Warbeck on his Scottish border, at least for the time being. Henry's attention was dragged back to the rest of his kingdom by a catastrophic event in the south. The heavy taxation raised in January had hit many folk hard, and in particular those in faraway Cornwall were extremely angry that they were required to pay for a war from which they expected to get no benefit at all. It is difficult to comprehend now how the various far-flung regions of the kingdom saw themselves in the late 15th century. Just as Wales and Ireland had distinct identities which did not always chime with the wishes of the English king, so we have already seen that other areas distant from London, such as the north, could present problems for central government. In the far southwest, Cornwall was exactly such a place. Fiercely independent, the Cornish always resented royal interference in their affairs, and in 1497 Henry's taxation in Cornwall became a serious issue. A large number of Cornishmen, possibly as many as 15,000, showed their displeasure by marching to London, and let's face it, it's a long way from Cornwall to London, so they must have been pretty fired up about this. The leaders included an outspoken lawyer who argued that the Cornish should not have to pay for Henry's war on his northern border. It would be more appropriate, he suggested, for northerners to pay for their own protection. Henry became aware of the insurrection in May 1497, but was probably unsure quite how serious it was. The Cornishmen did not see themselves as rebels, and most certainly had no link to the Yorkist cause in general, nor Perkin Warbeck in particular. Nor were they soldiers, but common men armed with only bows and working tools. For the most part, they made their way peacefully across southern England, and as a result gathered more support along the way. They persuaded Lord Audley, another man who felt undervalued by the king, to lead them, and when they arrived in Kent, they intended to draw the king's attention to their grievances, in the hope that he might dismiss the evil advisers, as they put it, who had persuaded him to implement the tax in the first place. Henry arrived in London to find it in panic mode. Various bridges along the Thames were swiftly blocked, for example at Henley and Staines, to prevent the rebels from crossing to the north of the river, though there is no real evidence that they ever intended to do so. Queen Elizabeth and Prince Henry were sent to the safety of the Tower of London, and the Lord Mayor organised the defence of London Bridge. Henry ordered Lord Daubney, who was already on his way north with an army for the Scottish border, to divert southwards to defend London and meet the rebels south of the capital at Blackheath. Meanwhile, the Earl of Oxford was dispatched south to cut off the rebels' retreat. It appears that the rebels might have offered to hand over their leaders in return for a pardon, but Henry rejected that, and on the 17th of June, Lord Daubeny attacked, and after some initial hard fighting, routed the Cornish army, in the course of which 2,000 or so were slaughtered. The ringleaders were captured in the field and executed once Henry had reassured himself that the revolt was unconnected to the Yorkist cause. The rest were allowed to leave with a pardon, but those pardons came at a heavy financial price which would ruin many Cornish families for generations to come, which of course was the intention. As an added bonus, the fines Henry imposed on the truculent Cornish 
would more than cover the expenses he incurred in suppressing the revolt. With the Cornish revolt dealt with, Henry now needed to wrap up the whole Warbeck fiasco as quickly as possible, because the fact that 15,000 armed Cornishmen could march across England unopposed made his regime appear very vulnerable. In early July, he sent two senior bishops of Durham and London to negotiate with James IV the surrender of Perkin Warbeck. As it happened, Warbeck had already left the court of James IV and an elaborate, for which read harebrained, scheme was set in motion. James would launch a new attack on the northern border, whilst Warbeck would make a landing at the opposite end of the country in disaffected Cornwall, which was clearly ripe for rebellion, or at least had been some months earlier. What could possibly go wrong with this cunning plan? Well, as it turned out, pretty much everything. James IV launched his invasion in August 1497 and laid siege to Norham Castle in Northumberland. It did not go well. Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, Henry's commander in the north, advanced swiftly from Yorkshire with 20,000 men and forced the surprised James IV to retreat. After that, James was obliged to negotiate a truce with England. Warbeck, meanwhile, clearly in no hurry, decided to return to Cork at the end of July, where, as they say, his dream had begun. He expected to receive support from the Irish to improve his chances of success in Cornwall. Without any further information about Warbeck, that should be enough to convince you that he was an unrealistic fool. Bear in mind that by then Henry's agent, Sir Edward Poynings, had already calmed affairs in Ireland, and Warbeck was lucky to escape with his life let alone any significant Irish support. Undeterred, he landed on the Cornish coast at White Sand Bay on the 7th of September 1497 with perhaps a hundred or so supporters. This was only a few months, therefore, after the surviving Cornish rebels arrived home clutching their expensive pardons. How keen would they be to risk all in rebellion again? Henry knew very well that Warbeck was on his way, especially since four of his own ships had followed the pretender to Cornwall. Across the country, Henry had all bases covered with loyal commanders at every possible trouble spot. Mind you, let's not forget that Richard III felt just the same about his preparations in 1485. Anyway, ever the optimist, Warbeck marched to Bodmin, where he was declared Richard IV and persuaded some 3,000 men to support him. Within ten days of landing, Warbeck arrived at Exeter, the most important town in the south-west, which was held for Henry by the Earl of Devon. Some of Warbeck's men forced their way through the East Gate, but were repelled during close hand-to-hand fighting. After that, the rebels gave up and turned instead towards Taunton. But when Warbeck learned that Lord Daubeny's royal army was only 20 miles away at Glastonbury, He did what he had done several times before in his career. He panicked and during the night escaped, hoping to find a ship in one of the southern ports. When that appeared impossible, he was forced to take sanctuary at Bewley Abbey near Southampton. But even then, since many folk knew he was there, he decided to surrender to Henry rather than await capture, and he hoped for mercy. He met Henry at Taunton on the 5th of October and was sent with his Scottish wife, to London, 
while Henry basked in the glow of success. It must have been a huge relief to Henry to finally nail Warbeck, who had been a thorn in his side for many years. By the end of November, Warbeck had confessed to being an imposter, though of course, since he was Flemish, he could not really be charged with treason. Henry made sure the deception was well known and dealt leniently with him because it helped to minimise his importance. Rather than an actual Yorkist claimant to the throne, Warbeck was presented as just another out-of-luck loser. Thus Warbeck gave his word not to flee, and Henry allowed him simply to reside at court. His wife, Lady Catherine Gordon, was placed within the orbit of Queen Elizabeth. But, oh dear, Warbeck being Warbeck, he soon tired of being a nobody at Henry's court, and in June 1498 he did a runner. Needless to say, he was easily caught, and this time Henry's clemency was nowhere to be seen. Warbeck was placed in the tower. Despite some fanciful suggestions that Warbeck really was Richard Duke of York all along, I can see no reason to doubt Warbeck's confession, nor the letter he wrote around the same time to his real mother, telling her all about his exploits and inquiring whether she might have any spare cash. For me, this sums him up. He was a con man, and a pretty good con man too. Like most successful con men, he persuaded others by his charm and wit, but he lacked the substance to be any more than that. It has always seemed to me that if Henry believed that there was any possibility that Perkin Warbeck actually was Richard of York, then surely the best person to judge that was his queen, Elizabeth of York, who would have seen a great deal more of young Richard than Margaret of Burgundy had. It's also possible that Henry was already certain of Richard's death, but could not prove it. I've said before that for me, there was absolutely no possibility of Elizabeth Woodville supporting the claim of Henry Tudor in 1483, if there was even the slightest chance that one of her boy princes was still alive. Novelists and others have suggested that young Richard was spared a grisly death in the tower and somehow spirited away to safety, as if such things were simple or commonplace. I just don't believe it, because it was jolly tricky to get out of the tower. And that neat segue brings me to the full stop at the end of Perkin Warbeck's sentence. He was in the tower along with the real Edward Earl of Warwick until 1499 when apparently the two young men decided to try to escape, or at least so we are told. There was a conspiracy, it seems, by several Londoners to free them. But there is a whiff of a frame-up to that story. Though neither man actually presented a genuine threat to Henry in 1499, both were rather inconvenient prisoners for him, especially as the arrangements for the much-awaited Spanish marriage continued slowly. Would it not be a happy coincidence if the two prisoners made a noose for their own necks? We'll never know for sure, and of course, Warbeck was certainly foolish enough to try to escape. But what of his fellow inmate, Edward Earl of Warwick? Much has been made of some flimsy evidence that he was a simpleton, but I suspect that, having spent most of his life under house arrest by someone or other, he was probably just not very worldly wise. A charmer like Warbeck had convinced plenty of people who were far from simpletons to support him. So we should not dismiss Warwick's intellect 
quite so easily. I wonder whether Warwick, after so many years of not living a normal life, simply said, to hell with it, I may as well try to escape. It's better than staying here for the rest of my days. The swift trial and execution of Warwick and Warbeck in November 1499 may have been the postscript to one tragic story, but sadly it was only the beginning of Tudor paranoia about possible rivals. Had previous kings adopted the same lethal approach as Henry and his successors, it's doubtful whether there have been any royalty or nobility left at all. While Henry was by no means the first to use judicial murder against his opponents, he was the first to lay down the means by which his son, Henry VIII, could remove any potential rather than actual rivals, merely on the suspicion that they might be a threat. Once you go down that road, it's truly impossible to stop, as Henry VIII discovered. There is also an argument that executing Edward Earl of Warwick was the most stupid thing Henry VII could have done. Because as long as the senior Yorkist claimant was alive, all other lesser claims could not be advanced. Once Warwick was dead, the poisoned chalice of York passed to the five surviving de la Pole brothers, the eldest of which, Edmund Earl of Suffolk, had thus far remained loyal to Henry. Suffolk clearly had a few thoughts about the throne as early as the summer of 1499 when he fled abroad for a time. Though he returned briefly, in 1501 he left once more, this time taking his younger brother Richard with him. They went to the court of Maximilian, who had been angered by the execution of his protégé Warbeck. Henry imprisoned their brother William de la Pole in the tower, where he remained for the rest of his life, 38 years. In his last decade, Henry's spirit, not to mention his legacy, took a serious bashing from events. In June 1500, his third son, Prince Edmund, died. Though the longed-for Spanish marriage was finally carried out in November 1501, by April the following year, the bridegroom, Prince Arthur, England's great hope, was dead. He was probably struck down by a particularly nasty illness known as the sweating sickness. The king and queen were devastated by the news. It's one of the few moments that Henry's humanity shows through his armour of formality. Aside from the sheer personal tragedy of Arthur's death, it also meant that the entire Tudor regime now hung by a single thread, the life of King Henry's second son, Prince Henry, a not terribly robust boy of ten. Some later writers saw in the sudden demise of Arthur, and thus the Spanish match itself, a terrible symmetry. Was Henry Tudor reaping the whirlwind from killing the innocent Warwick? But if God was punishing Henry, he wasn't finished yet. News that the Queen was pregnant cheered everyone up, but shortly after her confinement began in February 1503, she died, and the daughter she bore died with her. Henry, clearly utterly devastated by this new blow, retired alone, inconsolable, to Richmond and left the funeral arrangements to his mother, Margaret Beaufort. In the weeks after Elizabeth's death, Henry himself fell ill, perhaps was even close to death. At Richmond, his mother organised everything with the help of his most loyal servants, including Arthur Plantagenet, the late Queen's half-brother, who proved himself to be both supportive and loyal. 
For many weeks, the king was weak, but he survived. Though I think it would be fair to say that he never really recovered from the deaths of Elizabeth and Arthur in such quick succession, and truthfully, who would? Now he had to find the strength to apply himself to rebuilding the Tudor future around Prince Henry, a son destined for the church until fate intervened, a son raised with his two sisters, a son that Henry knew very little about. Henry considered remarrying, but as the years passed, it seemed that everything must depend upon Prince Henry. What a deathly place the court of Henry VII must have been after Elizabeth's death. In August 1503, Henry's elder daughter, Margaret, was finally married to the Scottish king, James IV. So she too left the court. Henry, desperate to secure his dynasty from the Yorkist threat, stepped up his efforts to capture Edmund de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk. While he did so, his spies winkled out anyone who might conceivably have a connection to any scheme to put Suffolk on the throne. Eventually, in 1506, chance intervened to deliver the Earl into his hands. But even with Suffolk in the tower, his younger brother, Richard de la Pole, was still at large. The spectre of the White Rose hung over Henry to the day he died in 1509, as it was to haunt his son throughout his reign. <laughs>